Hello, everyone. Welcome to our second episode of Browsing Security, the Browsing Security podcast by LayerX. A reminder, LayerX is a browser security company that turns any browser, your browser, into the most secure and manageable. And we want to enable organizations to work the way they want, just a bit securely. Uh, today with me here today is Ira Winkler. Hey, Ira, how are you doing? Just wonderful. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Ira is a cybersecurity expert, and uh, in the cybersecurity world, there are people that uh, talk about killing dragons, and there are those that killed a few dragons in their back in their past. So Ira <laughs> is the one that has a few decapitated dragons in his backyard. Uh, and today is a cybersecurity expert at Sai. Uh, Ira, tell us a bit about yourself and also about Sai and what you're doing over there. So basically, I mean, at a high level, I focused. You know, I've been in cybersecurity. I, I'm surprisingly going on almost 40 years, theoretically, if you include time at the National Security Agency, where I got my start. And um, basically, I've pretty much been doing a variety of different things, supporting field operations, supporting systems design, development throughout the IT field. And then also I started focusing, give or take, on the human aspects of cybersecurity and cybersecurity as a whole uh let's just say for 30-ish years and um generally if that includes things like how people interact with computers things like that like browsers how they're designed how they're implemented um and again people want more about me you can google me there's also eight books in print written by me either mostly whole and a few in part and um, there's that. But otherwise, I'll just say, you know, Cy, the company I work for, CYE Security. I wish they would call it just CYE Security, honestly. But um, the issue is that uh, we basically have, well, it's an Israeli company. So we have nation state hacking skills for one part of the business. The primary part of the business that I love, though, is a risk optimization tool, which pretty much combines risk quantification with attack path visualization to really give an organization the program that they, you know, the program that they need as opposed to the program they deserve. Because this is something actually that probably relevant for this conversation too. I've always said the biggest problem in cybersecurity is that security programs get the budgets they deserve, not the budgets that they need. And they need to learn to deserve more. Because what happens is everybody's out there saying, oh, we should have cybersecurity. And then they go into budget meetings, they go into planning meetings, and they're like, well, I need this, I kind of need that. It's like, well, okay, you want that, you know, and there's a difference between want and how they portray a, a need as a want. And they need to go in with cost-effective ways to say, look, I need this amount of money to mitigate these vulnerabilities, which are therefore going to save the company Y amount of money. Hopefully that makes sense because the problem is in cybersecurity, we're generally walking around saying, okay, well, what I got this last year. I want you to give me a little bit more this year because I think this tool can be really helpful. It's like, okay, um, we'll give you a little bit more money because that tool might or might not be helpful. What am I going to do with that? But if you could go in and say, look, this tool who, that cost us, again, X amount of money will save us Y amount of money. That's helping you deserve the budget that you need. And I will leave it at that because that's a completely different topic for another day. <laughs> it is, but it's very interesting. So two things that popped to my mind. Um, first of all, you come for from a very technical background. Uh, nonetheless, you have a lot of uh, expertise in human hacking or like the human side of cybersecurity and also uh, uh, risk management that are considered non-technical. However, in my point of view, eventually uh, security is about risks and risk arise from lack of prioritization on a, a lack of budgeting and also the human aspect. So what made you or like you, people like not necessarily know it because you mostly talk about <laughs> human hacking, but you're super technical. You're you're a, a mathematician uh, and come from a deep tech cybersecurity, like defense in depth. What made you move to those uh, like uh, software areas, sort of saying? Well, it's a combination of a couple things because you know I, I I am hesitant to call myself deep in technology. I, I actually have a patent pending on machine learning techniques. 
or implementing machine learning techniques to identify user susceptibility to phishing, hopefully that'll come through. But I, I, I think it's not one or the other. That's probably the problem that a lot of people do. They think, oh, I'll be either technical or, or, or human. In my background, probably the most valuable courses I had when I was pursuing my, when I started my doctoral degree, I took courses, and this is dating me, in information resource management. And that's the concept that it's not the computers that have value. It's the services and the data provided by the computers that have value. So information is the resource. So that's where, for example, you have the CIO. The CIO stands for Chief Information Officer. Before you had information risk management as a principal, you used to have like a director of technology that maybe reports to the CFO because computers were looked at as a monetary resource and the value of the compute and the value of your IT department was well, how much are we spending on computers? What's the value of the people and so on? And then somebody from Harvard and Harvard Business Review wrote a paper on information resource management where they said, if a computer system goes down, you could be losing millions of dollars a minute. But in theory, you still have the computers, you still have the software, you still have all the people. So by the old definition of the management of information systems, you are technically losing nothing. But information resource management says that really information itself is the resource. And in that case, what's really going on is, yes, you're losing millions of dollars a minute, not because of the uh, ownership of computers or whatever, but because the availability and all these other traits. And therefore, information itself should be managed as a resource in the same way there's money. And that's why you now have CIOs and organizations equivalent to CFOs in theory. And we've lost sight of that as we started pursuing this. So looking at these business aspects, I know a lot of people say, oh, education's useless. It's like, no, education should broaden your horizons and help you bring in other disciplines into your practice. And I attribute that primarily. The other factor was, though, when, I, when you work in an intelligence organization like NSA, it doesn't matter how you get the data. It matters that you have the data, how you process it and how to use it. And that was another aspect. And frankly, I started the human aspects of cybersecurity as a fluke. One day somebody said, Ira, instead of going to the Pentagon, can you make a few phone calls? And three days later, I had control over one of the world's largest investment banks and could fear I was told I could make transactions of millions of dollars on their systems. I think the legend was more legendary than the reality. I'm not really sure. I never tried to make a transaction. Somebody once described it that I, I, tr I transferred a penny just to prove I did not transfer a penny. I didn't give it a try. I just said, here's what I have access to. Figure it out. But anyway, the reality, though, was I was able to bypass a, a firewall system that had three different firewalls because that company was really anal and said, well, maybe you can get past the first firewall with one set of vulnerabilities, but then you're going to have to go through another set of firewalls and then another set of firewalls. And anyway, I got the company to essentially um, FedEx me a computer preloaded with their VPN software and had all the user IDs and passwords just from social engineering people over the phone. And I was able to go ahead and pretty much, you know, do whatever I wanted to at that bank. So, so basically you, you, you just realized that trying to break the walls is, is pointless and just getting through the front door, it will always be the easiest thing to do. And this is not, this is not like this is a common, it's common practice. The point is that attackers know this because they run a venture. They want mm -hmm. to uh, return on the dollars. So uh, wasting vulnerabilities is nearly pointless. But if you can get in, then why not? Right. Again, the, the purpose is the goal. It's not the technology. Too many people at the time where I kind of revolutionary, uh, revolutionized the whole concept of pen testing, I didn't even realize it because everybody else was out there focusing on, I hacked your networks, I did this. And then I'd literally, there was one time where a global five company brought me in because literally what I was told was by the CISO of the company, well, 
we had all the big four firms come in and all the big four firms came in and said, you know, we have full control over your entire network. And then what happened was they go to the CEO. CEO goes, okay, so let me understand this. I have been vulnerable and I am one of the most profitable companies in the world. I am vulnerable. I am one of the most profitable companies in the world. I will be vulnerable. So what? And then they had me come in, perform what I call an espionage simulation. And I was like, okay, three days later, here's your executive salary compensation schedule. Here's your new technology coming out in three years. Here's your mergers and acquisitions data, which was priceless to that company. And here's this, 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 and this. And by the way, I have full control over your entire network. And the next Monday, the cybersecurity budget was bumped up by $10 million. And then they hired CISOs for all of the business units around the world. Because I didn't say, here's how you're vulnerable. I said, here's, I showed them the impact of being vulnerable. But they weren't wrong. I just want to make the one point. And the fact was to say at that time that you're only going to focus on the people or the technology without focusing on the people, because it's not the computers you're accessing. You're accessing the value, however it can be obtained. But the point is that that CEO wasn't wrong. First of all, it's not his, it's not his expertise. And he asked, what's in it for me? Or, or what's in it not for me? Like, what should, why should I care? And that's a fair question. And uh, mm-hmm. vendors today meet that everywhere. Uh, one of the reasons why SAI is doing very well is because of the fact that it understands how to deliver this value and help uh, stakeholders take decisions. But it's not very trivial because there are, I think, like a zillion different solutions out there. By the way, many of them patented uh, for isolation <laughs> for this or in buffer zone for that. Uh, but these are technologies for no one's problems and it needs to align. So mm-hmm. that kind of, kind of brings us to, to the next step. This, this podcast is about turning your browsers into a zero-trust security control. Now, first of all, like as a, as a starter, that's my own point of view. The browser is a great thing. Like if you can exploit Chrome, it's highly likely you'll just go and sell the exploit since it's so rare. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the tool itself is highly secure, but it doesn't have a lot of governance. The users can do pretty much whatever they want and websites are not very restricted. So it's like a tunnel, it's like a pipe. The pipe is well built, but everything moves moves through. Interactions, in my point of view, are the interesting ones. And this is also where governance is lacking. So uh, it is a place which is unmanaged. Turning it into a managed space will increase security. Now, a thing that comes up a lot is zero trust security approaches. Uh, And we wanted to have this uh, podcast about how to turn the browser into a zero trust security control. Now, before we talk about the browser itself, first of all, what does it mean for you, Ira? Uh, to be a zero trust security control? Like, what does it even mean? Because it's a hype. A lot of companies use it, but I don't think they all understand what it means. So I'll I'll kind of paraphrase Jay Leak from Sin Ventures, which is a venture capital firm. And he was talking about machine learning. And he's like, yeah, you hear all the vendor pitches and 100% of them somehow figure out a way to mention machine learning. And maybe five or, you know, 8%, I forgot, it was definitely below 10, maybe have some legitimate implementation of machine learning because it's a buzzword. Zero trust is another buzzword that, again, I would be surprised that probably about eh, maybe 8%, 8 to 10% of companies that say that there is zero trust are actually zero trust related. And I want to use the term related because the problem is everybody says zero trust thinking it's some sort of security control. But it's not. It's a framework. And the framework was established by NIST, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And there are five pillars of implementing zero trust. The first is the user, and you need to authenticate the user, and you need to constantly authenticate the user every time the user has a request. Then you need to have device essentially device authentication and security. And that says the device itself is a trusted device that's coming from a trusted source. Then you have the network because at the end of the day, zero trust is about the user interacting directly with the application and the data. And the computer and the network just become this, you know, this layer that's invisible to the user in theory 
but it has to have embedded cybersecurity within it. So then there's zero trust technology embedded within the network layers. Then you have the workload. You know, in other words, what are the applications, for example, on a cloud-based system that a user is interacting with? Because zero trust by definition pretty much is implying that there is a the user is interacting with some system that is not on their PC uh, or or cell phone or whatever the case is. And so the user is acting somewhere, usually in the cloud, maybe internally in an in a internal environment, but they're not acting on their own specific system. And that workload itself has to be secure. And then you have the final layer, which is the data. And the data itself has to be secured. Now, there requires with zero trust, you know, authenticating all the way up, authenticating all the way down. Every time a new request is issued, the user's authenticated once again, the device is authenticated, and so on. And this requires an infrastructure from start to finish. Now, vendors are saying, I'm a zero trust solution. No, you are a piece of potentially zero trust to implement. The only one I said kind of comes close that I know of is really Zscaler because they have their own entire infrastructure, like a virtual internet that they've kind of implemented and so on. But I'm not here to sell Zscaler, but they have a they have a robust implementation of zero trust from all the way from the user all the way to the data and the workload. Now, the problem is going back to this is Everybody is trying to say that they are zero trust. No, they might have a piece of the solution of some aspect of one of the five pillars, but they're not an entire zero trust solution. And the average user doesn't understand this. Okay. Anyway, I don't uh, know if I answered your question. I just want to, you know. Well, it's, 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 it, it creates an, another question, which means that it's a good thing. Now, uh, I'll be tactless about it, like uh, honestly. So you, you mentioned five things. Uh, the problem I have about that, even though it's well-defined, I still think there is a little bit of uh, a fluff in there which is not well-defined. So, for example, you were talking about authenticating the user. Um, I remember like two, three years ago, I come from social engineering background for the entire audience. I'm a social engineer in practice. Uh, I used to be a bad guy. And anyway, um, I remember like people saying, yeah, if you got MFA or SSO, that's enough. Like the user is authenticated. And the justification was a Microsoft report, and I respect you guys in Microsoft, saying that SSO and MFA uh, uh, solve, uh, like prevent 99% of all credential-based attacks. Now, the, the hint in that statement is that SSO and MFA will solve 99% of your of, of that attack, attack surface. But that's not the reality. The reality is that 99% of, of times, uh, attackers just go for the easier path. It doesn't mean that it's, it is impossible. And we see uh, evil proxies and uh, many in the middle attacks between the user and the application. So it's not perfect. The definition of done for each of those five, in my personal point of view, is not perfect. The same goes in an opposite direction to the network layer. Today with TLS 1.3, your connection with an application, as long as the certificate is valid, it, it would take an, an NSA to break into it. And honestly, half of security companies in the network domain will not will not prevent it from being transpassed mm -hmm. or like compromised. Uh, but a lot of companies are buying more and more network security controls and not put enough uh, resources, in my point of view, into the user, uh, and the device, the data, and the, and the workload. Uh, so I think that is unbalanced, and also from time to time, what's considered what was considered zero trust framework two years ago won't necessarily be considered the same thing again. And I think it connects with what we we're about to talk about with regard to browser security. Well, let me say uh, there's a key point I've always said: anybody who tells you there's perfect security is a fool or a liar, or actually a combination of both. Exactly. Now the reality is that. Even if you can reduce risk by 99%, and frankly, it's probably more than 99%, because we're just looking at highly focused attacks that are going to go beyond and do whatever. But generally, you know, you're probably talking about a very, very significant reduction of risk. Yeah. And every layer is a reduction of risk. This is why I really fault the, this is a different topic, but I fault the security awareness profession because they're selling security awareness as the solution 
to the user problem. And unfortunately, awareness, and I wrote security awareness for dummies, so keep that in mind. Security awareness is a very valuable tool. Unfortunately, they're giving people the impression that they can solve the problem. And no, they can't. Security awareness is an incredibly valid, I should say, when done properly, according to Security Awareness for Dummies, is a very valid risk reduction tool. But it is not, it's a tactic, it's not a strategy. And people are confusing like multi-factor authentication and other issues like awareness, which is a tactic, it's not a strategy. And yes, a tactic is should give you reduction of risk, but the strategy as a whole should have a cumulative effect in the reduction of risk. It's never ever gonna be perfect, don't get me wrong, but there should be a very significant reduction in risk over time and it makes it that much more difficult for even focused bad people to get through. I agree. Sorry, you, you, what your question is, but no, no, I you were saying we're done when done correctly, and it reminds me so many places that I work with or worked at uh, that they had like a routine um, awareness trainings. And one of those places, like I think that as a former attacker and defender, uh, still a defender actually, um, I, I'm quite aware. Like I, I have like the I have the the scent like I I know how to sniff that the attack happening, but the awareness trainings were like uh, asking questions that it's visible what you should answer, but it doesn't give you underlying understanding. So mm-hmm. uh, in any question, if I had like an option to add, to to wear a helmet while I browse the web, someone will probably mark that as the safest. Because safest mm-hmm. is like it's anyway just a mumbling, but I, I just think it's not effective enough. And the best proof for that is something that I heard from a lot of CISOs. Maybe you can relate. The risk reduction is not done um, in the same way, in the same proportion over all the employees. We see a difference, and they say with with many employees it's enough. And there are some that it doesn't change whatsoever. And those that keep on installing funky things on their devices and do things they shouldn't. Uh, we'll do it anyway. And sometimes they come from IT. They are the most secure, like security oriented. They are very technical. They understand the risk, or at least they think they understand the risks and they just do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a combination of two things. In the first place, when you look at statistics and things like that from groups that have actually looked at it, you're usually going to find it's about 3% of people are causing 95% of the damage. Correct. And exactly. those three percent of people, and everybody thinks it's sorry. I guess I don't know if the expression is true in Israel, but it's too politically correct to blame the three percent of the people. You know, when actually you should. I mean, if you have a if you have a retail store and you have a cashier that keeps making errors, you gotta kind of say, hey, it's you. If you have if you're an accounting firm and you have an accountant that keeps making errors. You got to kind of say, maybe you shouldn't be in accounting. And if you have a user handling PII on a daily basis, who's shown to be vulnerable to things, yes, we need to protect, do more. But if they are a highly vulnerable point, you need to look at that. And, you know, as another thing that I didn't mention, but, you know, I'm also like in pursuing my PhD, I found a way to apply machine learning techniques to how to, well, I did mention this, how to find susceptible users. And there are users who are going to be susceptible based on on personality characteristics. And we need to account for that in some way by, you know, ideally either giving people who don't need to take annual security awareness training, like honestly, you and I could probably you know, without sitting through the training, we can sit there and answer these mandatory questions and just go ahead and get 100%. Instead, these systems make us watch the whole video instead of just giving us the answers. And you know we're not paying attention to it. Yes. And, that is- but that's a waste of time. It creates friction with the security team who's making people waste their time. And it's a negative as opposed to a positive when, yes, maybe these people are more susceptible, need to get more enhanced training as opposed to everyone 
should not get the same level of training or even the same type of training. But sorry, that's, a again, a much different conversation than browsing. <laughs> or actually, it's kind of together because how do you take this concept and the browser is essentially how a lot of users are the primary interaction with the data that they're interacting with on a regular basis. And how do you go ahead and secure that? Because the browser has become fundamentally the primary interface with between the user and the not the computer, because as I started, the computer is irrelevant with the data that they're accessing and trying to get value out of. Because the browser is both the workload and the data, and the and the device is just like a platform to access them. It's like it's it's just metal. It's kind of um, I must admit, I'm not exactly sure when I look at device, because theoretically the browser is on the device and offering it. The browser is also, you know, there must be a definition of it, but I honestly don't know what it is to be honest with you, because when you look at it. The browser is accepting the authentication in some way. The browser is pretty much the representation of the device itself at the same time. The browser, okay, well, then the, I mean, I wouldn't say the browser is the network because the browser is accepting data from the network. And depending on it, I really think that at the end of the day, the browser is looking at the applications, but not the app, you know, the workload. It's just interacting with the workload, but the data itself, the problem is when you get data from a workload and the data is to be secured, the problem is now the data is on the computer, the device. And even in a zero trust, you lose control of that. And that's a concern. So let me try and challenge that. Um, First of all, today, you you said first one is the user. Today, Chrome and Edge has uh, a synced uh, identity service. Today, actually, they encourage you to use the SSO. This is, by the way, the the super weapon of Edge and Chrome, because 99% of organizations are using either Office 365 or Google Workspace. And if they use none, uh, I wouldn't work there. Uh, based on experience, that that's a horrible thing. And they enjoy Edge Enterprise or Chrome Enterprise. So the identity is there and it's synced to the, the SSO and the identity service. So it's identity. It is partially the device. I would say it's like a, a different workspace because it's not inside, entirely the same thing. Like memory forensics, that I don't know anyone doing memory forensics on the day-to-day job uh, with regard to browsers. It's mostly behavior and content in data. Nonetheless, uh, the browser is a black box on the device. The best proof for that is how how do attackers get access to, to, to browsers? They deploy malicious extensions. And how do EDR vendors get access to the browser? They run in kernel mode and they still deploy a local extension because even if they run at the same permissions of the operating system, they still don't see what the browser does inside uh, mm-hmm. beyond like the network layer. And in terms of networking, well, yeah, you can say it's not the network. It gets something from the network, but it's like end-to-end encryption. It's a part of it. So I think in a way, even the workload, people think that they visit websites, but it's not true. They fetch code from the website and the execution of the pay- of the workload is in their browser. Uh, so in a way, you got all pieces of, uh, of Zero Trust uh, uh, framework in the browser. Obviously, it's not enough. So we see it does exist. And it kind of brings us to how uh, how to initiate zero trust in the browser. But before we get there, like a warm up question: Which browser do you use and why? So, uh, I hate telling people my security, but it's kind of obvious. But at <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm using Safari and I'm using Google Chrome. Obviously, I use Safari because it's pre-installed and works well on a Mac. But I use Google Chrome because um, let's just say Safari does not handle a lot of um, websites well. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. So you sometimes have to, like some applications, it's not optimized for Safari. Not sure why. Frankly, at this point, if you're going to have a, I think the term is responsive site, it should be responsive to you know, Chrome, Edge, it should be responsive to Safari, which is, you know, Macs are pretty widely used. And also on iPhones, Safari is the default browser on iPhones as well. But anyway, um, you know, that's what I use and why. And frankly, it just really depends on Safari is just easy to load up. And I hate to like keep 
extra application secured. So if I could, I wouldn't have downloaded Chrome, but of course everybody uses it. So that's the way to go. Well, I agree. And uh, I like I, it's interesting because Safari provides a lot of privacy. Like I think it's the most private browser, uh, but not the best for admins, for IT admins. And mm -hmm. Chrome, uh, like no matter what you think about Google, it has the fastest patching routine. It is manageable, but also provides a lot of uh, functionalities for the end user. So uh, I, th I think personally in terms of security, uh, it is a fair choice. And like the web is full, like it also has been full with secure browsers, but the fact that you put secure before uh, another word doesn't make it secure. The question well, is what your I risks are. I mean, I also have to give Google a lot of credit as a whole because Google, you know, I mean, there is a lot of really, really great security embedded within the Chrome browser and the whole Google environment as a whole. And uh, I would uh, use this platform to uh, to applause the, the zero uh, Google Zero project. Uh, mm -hmm. The patch and the disclose vulnerabilities in all the browsers, they are fully transparent about what's being found in Chromium. Uh, they've turned it into a, a, an open source project and they are proud to have vulnerabilities because this is a classic survivor's bias. Uh, meaning the more vulnerabilities being found on our platform Chrome means that it is more secure. And the last mm -hmm. vulnerabilities are found, it means that it is less secure because the vulnerabilities are there. Trust us. And that's the statement which is true for any software. Well, yeah. I mean, anybody who ever says that there's perfect software out there comes on, again, fool or a liar or both. Or both. Yeah. So um, moving to the next topic, what for you is zero trust security in browsers? Like what would you interpret it? It doesn't necessarily have, like you can take it into like a general approach. So if I were going to take it into the general approach, I mean, you need to ensure that zero trust within a browser, number one, facilitates the, um, the user layer, the authentication of the user and so on. It needs to go ahead and work with the data itself and, and the device itself, because you need to go ahead and not compromise because any application could theoretically compromise the underlying device. So you need to have a secure application that's not going to result in the um, vulnerability, not result in making the system underlying system vulnerable. Then you have to look at, okay, where's the data? Where's the execution? I'm going to still disagree with you on the workload because frequently what happens is the workload, it's not just you know, it's the data that's stored in the cloud. The retrievals are all being done on the side. Your application is not doing database retrievals and so on. It's providing an interface into the backend system. But either way, you still need to have that trustworthiness, the zero tr uh, trustworthiness. I don't know a better way to dis better word at the moment in order for that application that goes ahead and does the retrieval in the cloud or network-based workload to go ahead and take the data. But more important at the end of the day, I have to be able to trust the browser to store and trans and, and protect the data in accordance with its value that doesn't allow me to go ahead, take data, make copy and paste it into another application and where I can do anything I want with it. And ironically, a lot of what this goes to is multi-level secure environments. Back when I was at NSA and working in defense contractors, there was the whole concept of the orange book where you have multi-level secure systems and the compartmented mode workstation, now I'm really dating myself, was supposed to be a B2 level secure system that allowed you, for example, to take data in a workstation, which, you know, it used to be like a nice big sun computer. Now a sun does not exist. But um, you used to be able to go ahead and take it or a deck motif system, whatever they would be, and copy it. And so, for example, if you would take data from a secret window and copy it into a top secret window, it would go ahead and do that and maintain the security level of the secret, of the secret data going into top secret. On the other hand, it would say, hey, now I want to take data from the top secret document and copy it into the secret document. The compartmented mode workstation would say, no, you're not allowed to do that. But anyway, after all the 
promises the U.S. government made to people. They never actually bought a lot of compartmented mode workstations. So the concept died. But now, luckily, you know, we have we're starting to see a comeback again where you're able to start having cybersecurity for, you know, browser based environments to stop that copying and pasting and related types of actions. Sorry, I think I went off topic, but it was it was kind of on topic. It is, it, is on, it is on topic. So, um, like, I, it's interesting. And now I'll have to rephrase the question. Uh, what is actually not zero trust in Chrome? Because you mentioned a lot of things, like, I'll, I'll be now the advocate, the devil's advocate, or it's not really the devil, like, the other side. Like, why you shouldn't use Layer X? Um, there is an identity integrated with the browser. Uh, it is encrypted. The network is fine. Like, the TLS is, is enforced. Uh, the segmentation from the operating system is decent. Uh, it's not perfect, but it's very well. And also data and workload are done fine. But then you mentioned something else. How do I prevent employees from taking data to the wrong workload? And that's something that the browser doesn't do at all. Well, it's that as user control there. It goes beyond just saying, I kind of have embedded security. There's a difference between embedded security and management of user security requirements. Okay, and please elaborate. So for example, if I just say, look, I'm gonna be able to connect to the internet through TLS and the data connection is gonna be secure. Okay, that's nice that you're, you're, you're telling me data is encrypted as it goes over the network because it's embedded there. But again, how do I know if you're actually using the data how can i cut off the user from the data i'm going to have to do that through other means the browser doesn't have a lot of user controls where i can go ahead and start saying okay i want the user to be able to do x versus y if a user can bring up a window and start interacting with the window yes the system itself might be a and it comes back to the original issues that i mentioned before when we started Technically, the product is secure. Operationally, the data is not being secured. The data I take and I open up a window, like let's say I open up common thing like Salesforce. If I open up Salesforce and Salesforce has a web-based implementation, I can copy and paste, I could take screenshots, I could do a variety of different things with all the data I download, I can copy and paste it and put it onto a USB drive and so on. That again, but yes, I'm getting the data securely from Salesforce. Yes, the user is authenticated to Salesforce, assuming of course their credentials haven't been stolen. That might be, that might be the valid user, but there's a variety of a whole bunch of other issues. And I'm not sure, for example, if Layer X as some sort of um, token-based authentication so that if people steal credentials from one site or from a user, that they can then log on in Croatia and use those credentials in Croatia, even though it's not on a trusted device. I would love to think Larex implements that. I know that, for example, is you know something that stopped a lot, a lot of hacks. For example, um, you know, uh, most recently, like there were hacks against Twilio and 130 other companies where people were using man-in-the-middle vishing attacks to try to get access to critical things like they did and compromising Twilio to an extent that it made it very public. At the same time, people tried to um, compromise a Cloudflare, and Cloudflare prevented that breach because they used hardware-based authentication. They used something beyond just what's there, and it would be nice if these browser devices also had this embedded security. Now I don't know. So, I, I, I no, don't know. Does it? So oh, okay, good. Okay, so, so you don't so, edit this out. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not embarrassed. Like, geez, it's a, it's an interesting feature. We need to make it for 2024. No, we do it. But uh, I'll explain what we do and why we do it. Um, CISOs love identity providers, and they want consolidation. So instead of trying to be yet another identity provider. We integrate with SSO solutions such as Okta, Google SSO, and others, and we turn the extension into a mandatory authentication uh, factor, like an extra factor. So it's something that you have, 
but it works differently than other things. And I'll elaborate. The user goes into the application. So like, like I, I write a technical guy, but for the audience, uh, like let's assume there's someone over there doesn't know how it works. I try to go in Gmail and I say, hey, Gmail, it's me or let me in. Gmail says, I don't know who you are. I'll ask Okta. That dude knows who you are. And then it asks Okta. Okta, do you know if that's or? Now, at this point, Okta, Okta, which is an amazing solution, provides a lot of integrations in order to uh, support different use cases, something that you know, something that you have, something that you are. So with the Lyrics integration, it says, listen, I don't know if you're or, but luckily we have Lyrics Cloud instance. We can ask that. Then what happens is that there is a tunnel that starts between the, between the Okta side and the browser. The extension lives in a hidden compute space, so it cannot be managed in the middle. And it knows how to how to uh, hook on the server side and have like a, a like an invisible uh, token exchange. It also interacts with the backend, so it's like a, I would say like a triangular authentication process. Like the backend mm -hmm. says, yeah, it's fine. The extension says it's fine. Okta says it's fine. Um, and like uh, you you have to man in the middle a lot of things that are very very complex in a lot of different locations which are invisible to the web. I'll say I'm saying that because. Saying that something is a perfect, uh, you said it yourself. But I mm -hmm. think that it's far, far, far better from things that exist now. Now this is what we do, and it's it works great, uh, and it uh, it brings complexities because I had to uh, reboot my operating system to Windows 11 for an, a misfortune, a series of misfortunate events, <laughs> and then I had to re-authenticate with the Lyrics IT. Hey, it's really me. And I had to go through a very long and thorough authentication process in order to pin my browser. And it's browser pinning. Now, why is that needed at all? You have regular SSO. One OTP, like six digits, and I'm in. Can be managed in the middle or proxied, proxied very easily. The other alternative is device trust. And device trust is a fancy word for the SSL certificate of the device, meaning that I have to, to trust all the traffic from the device which is exactly the opposite of zero trust uh, security. Mm -hmm. It means that I trust the full device. Now, if I trust the browser, but I don't trust the device, there are two alternatives. One of them is to isolate the browser, provide it a different certificate. Problem with that is that the browser is already the heaviest, more, most resource-consuming uh, application on the desktop. This is why local isolations and also remote isolation solutions failed. They didn't really conquer the market because it's taking the heaviest application turning it slower and heavier. And this is something that I'd like to talk about in a minute, like the, the cost, the user experience price. So with Lyrics, we just initiate a very a, 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 like innovative authentication process that is something which is not as complex as device trust, or uh, I just say like unflexible and not mm -hmm. as insecure as regular SSO. And this is just a flavor for organizations that need that. You were talking about Twilio. There, I think there were like about 10 different like a huge tech enterprises in the US that got compromised the same way last year. They didn't have device trust. Now, security teams over there exist. They are not dumb. They are very hardworking people. They know what mm -hmm. they're doing. And the fact that they chose not to use device trust is not because they were like ignoring the risk. They were managing the risk. And for productivity purposes and for growth, they needed to provide access for unmanaged devices. This is the reality. Security cannot, in my point of view, it cannot tell the CISO, no, listen, you need to change something in the way you work dramatically to be secure. It must adapt to fit the organization. That's at least my, my two cents or like five minutes. Uh, but then it, it comes to the user experience because if there was no user experience impact for device trust, everyone would have been using it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Another question then. <laughs> So no, I'm not disagreeing. I would agree. But anyway, okay. Moving on to the next uh, to the next thing. So we talked about isn't zero trust in the browser, and uh, the way I understand it is mostly uh, the like what's happening inside, like making sure that things are going to the right direction they should go to. Uh, now we are left with a few other items that are interesting. Um, who's 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 the problem? Is it Chrome or the user? Like mostly, like typically. With most use cases, I mean, I technically think both. You know, you can't have a clown without a circus. So uh, I'll use that as an analogy. That you know, like I keep telling people, it's like yes, user, and like you know, my book, you can stop stupid. 
Stupid is not the user that everybody thinks. Stupid are the, I mean, technically the security professionals who know the user is going to do something wrong and don't do anything to try to stop the user from being in a position to do something wrong and don't mitigate the likely results of a user doing something wrong. And so when you look at who's the problem, it's like, yes, users have to do things that are not desired for problems to happen. But at the same time, the system should be able to, again, prevent or attempt to mitigate either through what I call the user environment and not allow users to do things or to proactively, you know, mitigate potential harm. So it's not one or the other. It's a combination of both. Again, the user can only do things you're giving them the ability to do. So Chrome doesn't allow the CISO to set the right reality in the browser, basically. It, again, if 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 you're saying that, I'm like, that's pretty much, you know, you can word it in a favorable way, which that is for a layer X functionality, which is accurate in the way I look at it. Because again, it's not just, yes, a user is going to do something that is stupid, inevitably. Some user will do something stupid, but to not expect and to not attempt to mitigate that, to not put technical controls in place, makes the security team the stupid ones. Because I can promise you, if you nothing else, 100% accuracy, some user in your organization will do something stupid. I promise that. I agree. Um, yeah, well, but that's but that's a basic reality. Like, the, and there always will be someone like that because so there is no like never like one hundred percent, and it's an ongoing work. This is why I hear from a lot of CISO like CISOs complain for exhaustion because it's it's an infinite process. You never get to the end goal. Well, I mean, there is I don't know anything in business that is an end goal. You know, you I mean, you're you're running your own company. You make a sale. Okay, great. You made the sale. That's that doesn't make your company a success. You need to make the next sale and the next sale and the next sale. If you're a captain of a ship, you get to a destination. It doesn't mean your life and you could blow up and the, your life is over and you blow up the ship. You got it to one port. You got to get it to the next port. And so it's you know like all these people that say, "My God, security is a never-ending process." I'm like. If that's your thing, I don't know where you can exist in life thinking there's ever a destination where maybe if somebody's going to give you a hundred billion dollars, then you get the money and then you could sit somewhere and never have to deal with life again. Okay, then you can go ahead and declare it done. But in any major profession, I just wish people wouldn't act like losers and say, gee, my job is never done no matter what I do. I don't know any job that's ever done. I agree. Uh, no, except for like uh, when you get to retirement, like that, then that's what. Then oh, even then, like, then you're like trying to get yourself to medical appointments or something like that. But it's just a different job. I agree. Um, Ira, we're getting near to the end, so I have like two last items. Um, again, being the devil's advocate, um, I think that Esiso may ask is like, okay, browsers exist for like exactly thirty years from 93, where then like the first uh, consumer browser mosaic was was out. Um, and like, this is a new domain. And um, they try to understand like what has changed, like why it hasn't been browser security a thing for the last 30 years. Like, is there anything that dramatically changed in the way organizations work or IT or the browsers themselves that made it interesting? No, I remember, God, I'm dating myself. I remember when Mozilla first came out with a browser. And um, sorry, I remember when Mozilla, sorry, my dog is now going crazy. Um, I don't know if you can hear it, but he's... No, no, we can't hear it. I have Okay, good. My, my dog is going crazy here beneath the table as well. Nah, he just literally ran down one stairs up another, went around the hardwood floors, and I have no idea why. But... Um, Sorry, so I, I am dating myself and I remember when Mozilla first came out and it wasn't until version 1.2 where they actually implemented password protection. So you had websites all around the world for a period of time where there was no capability 
to have an authenticated experience with a website, even for basic bad passwords. And what's gone on is over time, it's just like now people are turning their attention from one problem to another. I think before we used to have like, it wasn't as prominent that applications were the default front end and were the default application for any um, any website. I mean, it's obviously grown to that point, but even like things where you used to have like at best dumb terminals, these dumb terminals were pretty much just doing things um, you know, giving basic functionality, but now browsers are pretty much the interface into the world for most companies. Yeah, I agree. So um, in order to wrap it up, and it's been a wonderful conversation, um, like for a CISO that wants to start uh, implementing zero trust concepts in a browser, uh, what would be a, like either a good spot to start with um, or like, Top, top recommendations, like besides using lyrics, of course, like like on a no budget or like as a general approach, where would you appoint a CISO listening to this podcast and they're asking themselves, okay, like what 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 am I doing next after, after listening to this podcast? I mean, the problem is there's really not much you can do without the technology embedded in it. You know, what I tell everybody is most applications have multi-factor authentication built, you know, like capable systems like all social media does, you know, pretty much Salesforce, you can implement that, implement like, you know, whether it's um, Okta, Duo, you know, secure tokens, whatever the case is, you have the ability to implement, oh, oh yeah, Microsoft Authenticator and Google Authenticator for that matter. You need to start building in security and taking advantage of what's already available and frankly, freely available. You know, I used to give a presentation, I should give it again, what The Wizard of Oz says about information security. And everybody thinks the movie The Wizard of Oz is about there's no place like home. The real moral of The Wizard of Oz, if you think about it beyond just the trivial level, is you have what you're looking for, you just don't know it or know how to use it. And in many cases, I'm not saying it's, you know, you can solve all your problems these days, but you can solve a significant number of problems by enabling the security that's built into a lot of systems. And that includes this type of, you know, that includes multi-factor authentication, includes updates, it includes any security extensions that you can get that better, that can take over and have better access and things. Because sometimes you download a browser extension and that can enable better security. For example, you can implement, what's, what's a good one? Go to meeting and other meeting makers, you can implement like into Gmail and Google Apps so you have better integration. And that does lead to a more secure operating environment, hopefully. But, you know, not perfect, but you, you should start looking into things like that. That sounds great. Uh, Ira, thank you very much. I hope that it has been interesting for you as it has been for me. Um, I surely enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, see you in the next time you're in Israel. Yep. Thank you. I'll see you soon, I guess. Perfect.